amen and good morning once again. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and join me in turning to the little epistle of Jude. Little epistle of Jude. It's the, the last page before the last book, right? Before you begin Revelation, you encounter the tiny little book of Jude, a powerful 25 verses of Scripture. And as you're turning there, uh, perhaps it's your first Sunday at North Roanoke in some time, or maybe your first one ever. We generally work our way through books of the Bible. There are occasional exceptions to that, but in, in general, we believe God wrote us books. Uh, compiled into one big book, one big story about Jesus Christ, His Son, and how we can have life in Him and be on mission with Him. That is, that is our purpose and meaning in life, is to be builders of the kingdom. Psalm 67 tells us that we've received salvation not so much for us as for others, uh, so that it would be given away. And so at North Roanoke, we want to be Christ church. We want to be a, a holy people of God on fire for Him. We want to impact the Roanoke Valley. We want to make a discernible, positive difference in the lives of people who live in our community. Uh, we want to be a place, even if people aren't Christians, if, if our doors close tomorrow, they drive by and say, that's a shame, because North Roanoke was a big part of investing in our community. And finally, we want to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jude warns us uh, that sometimes people will try to come into the church and sort of cut the heart of the gospel right out of the church. They'll try to threaten and undermine, divide. Uh, and so Jude is writing to a church that is, is wrestling with some secret invaders, some what I call gospel imposters. And that's why the, the theme verse of the whole book we find in verse 3, after he does the introduction in 1 and 2, in verse 3 he says, so you need to contend earnestly or to fight or to strive earnestly for the faith. There's one faith that's been delivered once and for all to the church. It's been entrusted to the saints, and we've got to guard it. And last week, we saw that one of the primary reasons we need to do that is because uh, those who fail to do that, those who fail to receive and believe the gospel and then stand for the gospel in endurance will face judgment for their sin. So now, as we transition from verse 7 to verse 8, you can again hear sort of this implied question by the people to whom Jude is writing. Well, we get it, Jude. We understand that the angels who fell and Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we understand that uh, the people, the Israelites who were in the wilderness that failed to believe you and take the promised land, we understand that they're destroyed, that they're under judgment. But are you trying to say to us that there are people in our midst who are, are going to face judgment? Are you saying that's, that's an issue for us right now? And Jude's answer is, yes, absolutely. That's what I'm trying to say. So verse 8, hear now the word of God. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Jesus, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these they are destroyed. Would you pray with me? God, help us to understand this morning that coming to Jesus is more than praying a prayer or signing a card or making a decision. It is submission 
to a holy God. Lord, I pray that we would, if needed, be broken this morning over those times where we have rebelled against you and gone our own way. And God, that you would bring us back through a a faithful and loving Savior to be firmly planted and rooted in Christ and striving together for the sake of your gospel. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude has identified a major problem. There are people in the church who claim to know Christ, but they are headed for the same destruction that he's just described that the Israelites, the fallen angels, and the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah endured. These people will tell you that they believe in God, maybe even that they believe in Christ, and some of them may even be sincere. Perhaps they repeated a prayer someone told them to pray as a child. Perhaps they walked an aisle or or signed a decision card and now believe that because they made a very impressive decision 50 years ago that God somehow owes them something for their great decision, even though their decision never led to any fruit in their lives. They have faith in faith, or faith in their own good wit, or faith in a decision, but not faith in God, because faith in God, true faith in God, the faith in God that's been entrusted to the church is not faith in ourselves. It's not faith that leads us to focus upon ourselves. It's faith that leads us to focus upon Christ and His glory and His desires for our life, not our own. It leads to submission to God, which is why I've titled this sermon, Contend by Submitting to God. The the opposite of the behavior that is condemned in these three verses is submission to God. Uh, These individuals who are invading the church and ripping the heart of the gospel out of the gospel are failing to submit to God. Those who trust and believe the gospel will be those who submit to Christ. So true trust in Christ brings a divine and irreversible transformation of who we are, why we exist, who we worship, and how we see the world. When I listen to the radio, yeah, I still listen to the radio. Sometimes when I get in the car, I know that's a bit antiquated, but uh, turn on the radio, um, turn on the TV, not very often, read a news article on Google News or wherever it is that my phone directs me to try and stay current in the world. I don't know about you, but, but because I am a follower of Christ, I see the news differently. Than, than most of the world would, would do. I'll give you an example. Just a moment, I was, I was sitting here and I, was, I have a little clock on my phone that tries to keep me accountable to not take you, you know, to like 10 o'clock because then your Sunday school teacher would be upset with me. And, and, and as I was getting that loaded so I could see what time it was, um, a little blurb came through from the Weather Channel about an earthquake somewhere. And I, I didn't catch it because I was on my way up here, but later I'll go back and try to figure out where that was. I think it was an earthquake, maybe a tornado. Anyway, some, some natural disaster. And, and when, when we read about that, a lot of times we think, oh, that's, you know, another calamity, whatever. But as Christians, particularly around the world, sometimes I'll think about the missionaries who were there or the opportunity that that devastation is going to give to Christians that they did not have to serve in Jesus' name and what it is that God might be doing to further the gospel And so the lenses of the gospel influence and impact how we think about political news, national disasters, everything else. I mean, it's like like a daily prayer list for us. When we really come to Christ, our, our view of spiritual reality is forever changed. We stop seeing ourselves 
and start submitting the entirety of our lives to Christ. This, this, by the way, is not the radical, crazy pastor version of the Christian life. It is the Christian life, period. To, to submit to Christ, to come to Christ, requires a radical change in our worldview. Yes, we will stumble along the way, but those who are new in Christ are given new ambitions and new delights. Our greatest joy comes in knowing and worshiping and declaring the glory of the all-glorious Christ. So to contend for the faith this morning, we need to recognize the life that Christ produces in a Christian, and it is a life of submission to God. And we could, we could really divide that submission based on these three verses into these three points or these three categories. To contend for the faith, first, we must embrace Christ's authority over our lives. Excuse me just a moment. It's going to drive me crazy. We must embrace Christ's authority over our lives. Second, we must reject pride and rest in God's authority. And finally, we must respond and think biblically, not naturally. We'll come back and hit, hit each of those points in the next several moments. First, we've got to embrace Christ's authority over our lives. In verse 8, Jude shows that the intruders are no different from the examples of rebellion in verses 5 through 7. They claim to belong to Christ, but they don't have any regard for holy living. And they justify their sinful actions and attitudes by dreaming. Now, in the Bible, dreaming's not always bad, right? God sometimes works through dreams. You remember Joseph escapes to Egypt with Jesus because the angel, an angel of the Lord, appears to him in a dream. I've heard numerous stories, in fact, read an article this week about thousands of Muslims who've been coming to Christ as they've been having dreams and visions of a crucified man speaking to them, saying, I am raised, come to me. Awesome. And why are they able to have someone to answer their questions when that happens? Because the North Roanoke, churches like North Roanoke Baptist Church, who are in partnership with 47,000 other churches across the country, every week when we give, we're helping to fund missionaries to be there to answer those questions. You're, you're a part of what God is doing in the world every week that you give. So God, God sometimes intervenes in His world, even through dreams, to confirm His truth. But here's something we need to understand. In verse 3, He's already promised that He will never intervene in His world to change the truth. And these dreamers appeal to their dreams as divine authority to change the truth of the gospel or to act like they don't really need to submit to Jesus. Well, I had a dream and Jesus told me to go sin and so now it's okay. And here's what we need to know. That stuff is crazy. Jeremiah warns about it. Old Testament warns about it again and again. Jeremiah says it this way. I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesied lies in my name saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets? who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own hearts. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no man deceive himself. What is self-deception? It's hard to know when you're self-deceived because you're deceived and you're doing it yourself. So how do you know? Well, if your faith does not lead you to submit to God, but it only makes you more comfortable in the rebellion that you have against God, you're not saved. You're self-deceived. The height of self-deception is saying God told me to do something that God clearly has not told you to do. Salvation without submission is self-deception. Notice the sins that flow from their dreaming. 
They are sins of rebellion. They're like the sins of Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't eat of the fruit. They eat of the fruit. They defile the flesh. God has given us clear commands about the use of our body, but they defile the flesh. They defy Christ's authority. They reject authority, and they disrespect angelic beings. First, they defile the flesh. The word defile means to pollute or to contaminate. All sin defiles the conscience. However, defile is most often used in the Bible about sexual sin, which defiles not just the conscience, but also the body, because the body is so intertwined with the sin. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, He who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Jude clearly intends for us to think about sexual defilement, but also any defilement that comes by appeasing any desire that our flesh might have. When we, when we truly repent, we go from rebelling against what God has told us to do with our mouths and our hands and our eyes and our bodies. We go from rebelling against those things to eagerly worshiping God. We go from rebels to His will to those who are bought by Him at a high price and want to present ourselves to God and to His plan as living sacrifices. Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, the promises of the gospel, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What, what sin are you tolerating in your life this morning? What compromise are you tolerating in this morning? Will you bring it today to God and say, crucify it, kill it in my life, destroy it in my life, because I want to cleanse myself from every defilement of body and spirit and to live wholeheartedly for you. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4, Paul again says, this is the will of God. Many, I've heard many come into my office, Pastor, I just don't know what the will of God for my life is. I just, you know, I, I just need to know what, what's, what is God doing in my life? Well, a lot of times I don't know whether it's to take that job or to go there or to move or whatever else. But a lot of times I want to back up and say, here's the will of God for your life. Stop focusing on yourself and start living for Jesus. Listen to what Jesus, what Paul says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. He wants to set you apart. He wants, you to make, he wants to make you more and more like Jesus. He wants to refine you and make you more holy and more pure and more on fire for the mission of God in the world. That's where the fun is. When he's constantly refining us and chipping away at our selfishness that, that we discover in new ways every week as we grow in him and he knocks that off and he sands us down and makes us more like Jesus and more effective in his kingdom. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he adds this, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and in honor. The imposters don't know how to do God's will. They do what they want. They reject authority, Jude tells us. Who's the church to tell me how to live? Who are you to meddle in my life? Who are you to judge? What do you mean I can't teach a Sunday school class if I don't participate in corporate worship, why should my conscience be troubled by my drunkenness on Friday as long as I show up and check the box on Sunday? Why do I need to be faithful to a local church through regular attendance and faithful service and praying and sacrificial giving and holy living and accountability for others? Why is anybody going to meddle in my life? Because that's exactly what Jesus says the local church is. 
Y'all here this morning? I am burdened by the rampant disregard in our country for the local church. We live in such a me-first, entertainment-driven culture. What do you have for me lately? Evaluation of what a church is. It's sinful, it's abomination, and it is not from God. God hates it. Why are we here this morning, church? We're here for Him. Never forget when we stepped foot on the ground in Puerto Rico and the first church I had a privilege of preaching in and they poured in and just sat in the pews and it was like we didn't need, they didn't need a greeter committee because the whole church was greeting us when we came in. And then some came and sat down and some came and kneeled before the service and were praying as they arrived. The, the fellowship and the camaraderie and the community, you just you could cut it with a knife. Around the world, they don't have buildings and air conditioners. They, in Africa, sometimes they meet under a tree. God help us. Michael Lawrence in his book on the doctrine of conversion, which is the work, the miracle by which God applies what Jesus did on Calvary in His death, burial, and resurrection. He applies that to, to our hearts and makes us new from the inside. He, he says, what does a false convert look like? You see, his concern is there's a lot of people who prayed a prayer, checked a box, or signed a card, and that you haven't been able to find them in a church in a hundred years. And he said, here's, here's, here's a few things that he said. He said more than this, but here's a few that stood out to me. He said, a false convert is excited about heaven, but bored by Christians in the local church. A false convert thinks heaven will be great, whether God's there or not. Yeah. Talk more about the streets of gold than the Son of God. A false convert likes Jesus, but didn't sign up for the rest. You know, obedience and holiness and discipleship and suffering. The things that we are promised throughout the New Testament. If we've been made new by the Holy Spirit, we will have a passion for holy living. We will be made new by, by and in the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. We won't use him to justify our lawless deeds. Christians who spend time, spend their time thinking of how close they can get to the line of sin without crossing it, rather than of how they can shine like bright stars in the night sky, that bothers me. God forbid that we would turn the gospel on its head and make it about the pleasures of our flesh, rather than living for and serving at the pleasure of our king. They reject authority. They revile authority. They defile the flesh. And finally, they disrespect angelic beings. We, we don't know exactly what Jude is talking about here. Um, there are several theories. It could be that he's, the, the word literally says they reject glories or they revile glories, and, and that's an infrequently used term which could be referring to perhaps even fallen angels who had a sort of glory, and therefore they think they can mess around with the demonic without worrying about God, right? We'll just, we'll just handle this ourselves. Or it could be good angels, which is what I think is in view because he uses the word glories, and I think Jude would speak of something glorious as, as probably also something good. And so in Galatians 3.19 we learn from Paul that the law was given through the agency of angels. And in Hebrews 2 verse 2, we learn that the word was spoken through angels and is unalterable. 
and remember that we've just learned that they're dreamers. In other words, they want to use their visions and their revelation that aren't from God to change what God has said and to make their rebellion okay. And so I think what's happening in this reviling of angels or angelic majesties is they're saying, anything that has anything to do with God's unchanging authority in my life, I want to throw it off. I don't have anything to do with that. But the intruders, you see, the intruders believe they have no need for angelic beings associated with the giving of the law or any help for holy living. Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering spirits to believers. I don't know exactly how that is, but perhaps they even help us in this divine economy to appropriate God's word in our life and to, to have an understanding that following God is something that we must do. As Aiken writes, here's what they're thinking. If I don't need God's word meddling in my moral life, I certainly don't need his angels sticking their nose in it either. Self-centered and self-focused, my will, my way, my wants become preeminent above all things. So if we're going to contend for the faith, we've got to understand that a rebellious attitude is inconsistent with a redeemed heart. And secondly, we must not rebel against God. Rather, we must reject arrogance and rest in God's authority. In verse 9, Jude connects the rebellion of the gospel pretenders with their arrogance. Have you noticed what a good writer and thinker that Jude is? In, in, at the end of verse 8, he says they disregard angels. Now in verse 9, he gives another example involving an angel. They didn't learn from the example of the fallen angels in verse 6. And now they're reviling angels in verse 7, excuse me, verse 8. And now in verse 9, he's going to give us the example of Michael, the archangel. Michael's a big deal, biblically. He's, he's an archangel. He's the, he's the top dog, the big kahuna. He's most likely the archangel mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, which says the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Michael is the great prince who watches over Israel, Daniel 12.1. In Revelation 12.7, he fights against Satan and wins. But neither of those occasions are what Jude mentions here. He's reminding us of the account of the burial of Moses back in Deuteronomy 34.6, which tells us that the Lord buried Moses and that no human knows where his grave is. But interestingly enough, there is no mention in the Bible anywhere else of a debate between Michael and Satan about the body of Moses. Scholars believe the story may have been included in a work called the Assumption of Moses or the Testament of Moses, but there is no written account of that remaining to us. And so we're not 100% sure where this comes from. Clearly, Jude is writing probably to a, a predominantly Jewish audience who is familiar with Jewish oral tradition and Jewish writings that were not included in the Bible and so some people get really worried about this. How is it that Jude quotes from something that's not in the Bible and this is in the Bible? How is it that this is inspired? Well, it's really not a problem, right? And, and let me explain. The Holy Spirit often led biblical writers to use sources in the writing of the books of the Bible. You see it throughout the Old Testament when they talk about the, the um, chronicle of the wars of so-and-so or the chronicle of the king's of so-and-so. Also, 
And this is important for us to know, not just scripturally, but even in a sermon, right? Just because somebody quotes from a source doesn't mean you're endorsing everything that person says, right? I I could go back and listen to a sermon that I preached from three years ago, and I might have a quibble with how I said something. I mean, I sometimes I quote myself and be like, you didn't say that very well, right? So I'm not inerrant. I'm not infallible. Uh, The Word is inerrant and infallible, but the Word, the Spirit can inspire people to draw from sources and in that specific range that is quoted for them to know this is factually historically true. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude knows that this account is of a dispute about Moses' body. He knows that it's accurate. And he knows that it's going to help him make a point about the arrogance of those who have crept into the church but have no room for the authority of Christ in their lives. Jude doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us why Michael is, uh, excuse me, why Satan wants Moses' body. Perhaps he felt that Moses shouldn't be buried by God because he had murdered an Egyptian. Perhaps he wanted Moses' corpse as a trophy. See, I won. The great leader of the Israelites out of Egypt didn't make it into the promised land. We, we don't know why Satan wanted his body. But regardless, Jude wants us to learn to rest in the authority and the power of God. This example, in some ways, leaves us more, with more questions than answers. But we can't lose the point. The point is, there are people in the church who, unlike the archangel Michael, want to presume to be God. They want to take the place of God. Aiken writes, Michael is an archangel, a warrior angel, the greatest angel, but he's still just an angel. He's not his own authority, master, or lord. He does not set up policy and make rules as he wishes. Instead, do you see what he does? He quotes from Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2, which says, The Lord rebuke you. He doesn't tell Satan, Don't you know who I am? I was there when you fell. You were the greatest, and it's your fault that you fell. So, I stand in judgment of you. I'll show you. He doesn't do that. Instead, he yields to the authority of God. He rests in God's authority, even in a moment that he is clearly right. Right? Satan's wrong. Michael would have been right in in this dispute, but he leaves it in God's hands. You say, great, Daniel. What, What are the implications for my life? They are massive. They are massive. It means that Christians should should calm down. It it means that we can refuse to nitpick every detail because God is in control. It means that wives can trust God when they respect and honor their husbands and follow Him, even when they're not so sure that's the right direction to take. It, It means that husbands can keep on loving their wives with sacrificial love even if she is totally self-absorbed and manipulative and controlling and downright mean, that you can hang in there and be the husband of Ephesians 5, giving yourself for your wife as Christ loved the church, trusting God to break her heart and make her new. It means our love and devotion and affection for Christ makes us patient and long-suffering for one another. It means we are far more concerned with encouraging one another to live holy lives than we are with making sure that our favorite program made it on the church calendar. If Michael did not dare to pronounce judgment on Satan, 
How do we dare to rally people to our cause of the moment or to be on hyper alert for anything that might offend us or cause an interruption in our lives? We rest in the authority of God. God's got us. We belong to God. We're beloved in Him and kept in Him. He wants to multiply peace and love in this body. Jude says, don't just watch out for the obvious sins of rebellion. Also watch out for the hidden sins of pride. Leave to God like Michael did. Leave to God what is God's. Rest in His goodness, in His authority, in His sovereign power. And to do this, by the way, we have to keep our focus where the Bible puts our focus. Our focus must be on Christ, the glory of Christ, and the urgency of the mission of proclaiming His glory among the nations. When a church keeps their focus right there, she will not be sidetracked by lesser things that really don't make a dime's worth of difference in the direction of a church and the impact she'll make in the name of Jesus Christ. Finally, if we're going to do that, if we're really going to stay locked on Christ and his mission and have a unity in who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what he, how he wants to use us to compel us to reach others, there's, there's a third thing that Jude shows us we must do. We must respond and think biblically not naturally. With the word but in verse 10, Jude is contrasting the response of those who have come into the church to undermine it with the response of Michael. Michael is governed by God's authority and God's plan. Gospel pretenders are governed by their selfish instincts. The people who've invaded the church Don't respond to the questions that arise in life by looking through the lenses of the gospel. When you you put on the lens of the gospel, it changes how you see everything and how your your notion of self-importance. But rather than using the lenses of the gospel through which they see the world, they only have their own lenses on. And so they continue to respond to external stimuli as they would have before knowing Christ, supposedly knowing Christ. So they respond naturally and arrogantly and emotionally. They respond by feel and feelings rather than decisively for Christ in the gospel. They take the self-absorbed, self-focused, short-sighted, self-congratulating side of conversations, debates, and arguments. Gospel pretenders revile, they blaspheme, They speak negatively about things they don't understand, he says in verse 10. But praise God, our authority for what we say and what we know is not what we naturally feel. But it is what God has said and what he has given us to do in the world. Puritan William Jenkins, I was listening to a sermon that he preached on this from the 1600s this week in my preparation. He said something I thought was was very insightful. He says, where affection sways, or feeling would be a better way to say it in in 2019, but where affection or feeling sways, judgment decays. Well, I just don't feel like doing that, Pastor. I just don't feel like that. It just, just doesn't feel right. But what stands over our feelings is the Word of God. We subordinate our feelings to the truth of what God has said. This means our authority must always be God's word and our priority must always be the glory of Christ and the declaration of the gospel with our lips and our lives among all the nations until he comes. It means that Christians should be slow to speak and deep in their gospel thinking. 
There is, of course, a connection between our living and our understanding. Psalm 119.100 says, I understand more than the aged. Why? Because I keep your precepts. In other words, when we do what God commands, our understanding of the heart of God grows. The reason the, the gospel imposters, the reason these people who have invaded the church are so dangerous is it's like they've been vaccinated by a false gospel against the true gospel. They think they can belong to Jesus and do whatever they want because of a decision they made that didn't lead to any change in their life or their priorities. But Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. And I never cease to be amazed at how sin warps a mind. If we rebel against God and God's good design and keep finding ways to justify our sin, the sinful cycle just continues and continues and continues until either God finally gets us and breaks us or we end up in destruction. We got a puppy about a year ago. His name's Benji. Kids, you might need to close your ears for this sermon illustration. But Jude says that they're like unreasoning animals. They're unreasoning reasoning animals. I, I love our little puppy dog. He's great. But you know what? You could get him to do anything with a treat. He loves treats because treats are all about him. They're all about his taste, his palate, what is appeasing to him in the moment. And that's what the imposters are like. Just hand out another little treat for him. Just give me my, my next favorite program. Just give me my next favorite thing. Just do exactly what I want. As long as it's comfortable for me. As long as I like it. As long as I like it. As long as it tastes good to me. And then, if I did that with Benji, I could train him eventually to where I could get him to jump off a cliff. To his death. We've got to be compelled by something far more significant than our own self-interest. We've got to be compelled by the glory of Christ. One of the reasons I'm excited to go to Puerto Rico is in Puerto Rico, in addition to pervasive Catholicism, there is also pervasive, there is also the, the pervasive word faith movement. The word faith movement is a version of Pentecostalism which basically says it's all about you and your prosperity and your wealth and your health. And um, charlatan preachers have enriched themselves mightily through this and left the poor, poor, groping about, waiting for that next enticement. They even say that their words have the same power as God's words and that they can bind God and God's will and overcome it by, by the power of their words. This is a self-motivated, damnable heresy that is corrupting countries all around the world, including our own. Salvation needs to be proclaimed in Puerto Rico. A salvation that's about more than just my own self-actualization and my next paycheck and my next job promotion, but a salvation that is for eternity and about the glory of Christ our King. Now, that's a problem in Puerto Rico, but it's also a problem in the United States. Well, Puerto Rico's in the U.S., but it's also a problem on the mainland. Jesus is if Jesus is just a convenient cover for serving yourself, if you don't take the church seriously, if you don't take your spouse seriously, if you only think God is for you when everything is just peachy in your life, 
If you are more concerned about what will happen in 2020 elections than what God wants to do in the next five to ten minutes as we consider how we ought to respond to the message, then perhaps you still need to know God. What they know is their own understanding. Like unreasoning animals, they know by instinct rather than by the gospel. But God is here this morning. And for some of you who say, I made a decision 5, 10, 15, 20, 70 years ago, but it's really resulted in nothing in my life other than I come to church on Sunday and I leave during the week and I really don't give my life to the purposes of God and I'm really not passionate about Christ and His mission, but I should be. And today's the day that God's going to break me of a faith that is faith in faith rather than faith in Christ and delivery into His mission. Today's the day that I'm going to really repent of my sin and not just stop doing bad things, but I'm going to stop worshiping myself and I'm going to start worshiping God and I'm going to turn from the idolatry of myself and living for God this morning. In a crowd this size, there's surely one who knows that you've been pretending And today's the day to give it all up for the King. As we stand and sing, I invite you to come. Lord Jesus, we love you. We bless your name. And I ask, I ask God that you would do your work through your word today. God, if there's one, if they be five, fifty, a hundred, God, you never Stop as long as we have breath doing the work of sanctifying us, setting us apart as your people for your plan and your purpose and your mission. I pray, God, today would be the day that you would either restore one or bring one to the family for the very first time. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.